this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey listeners, this week in lieu of a normal Slate Culture Gabfest, we're bringing you a special live episode that was recorded last week at the Strand Bookstore in New York City. This was part of a book release event, a joint book release for my book, Cameraman, and Isaac Butler's new book, The Method. My book, as you certainly know from listening to this podcast and Steve endlessly plugging it, is about Buster Keaton and the ways that America changed during his lifetime, while Isaac's book, The Method, covers the history of method acting from its origins in Russia to its impact on American movies. This event, to me, was a dreamy book launch event, Steve. Of of the three or four things I've done so far where I've gone and read a passage of the book or screened a movie, I think this one felt the most special. It was like old home week because there were so many familiar Slatesters and longtime listeners around. Didn't you think it was a special night? I thought it was a really special night. I thought there was a lot of affection flowing through the room from us to the listeners who showed up on a really rainy winter night and back again to you guys who really wrote extraordinary books and were having your uh, your proper moment in the sun, as it were. Uh, it was really sweet. It was really warm. I hope that comes through on the recording. Our listeners should know, though, that we did break format uh, for this episode. It doesn't have the usual structure that you're probably used to from our show, from the Culture Gap Fest, but so be it, right? I mean, we're not rigid authoritarians here. I think, <laughs> you know, we survived it. I, I I suspect you can, too. Should we get on with the show? What do you think, Dana? Yeah, let's go. All right. Press play. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Book Twin Powers Activate Edition. On today's show, you might have heard Dana Stevens has written a book. <laughs> Cameraman Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Birth of the 20th Century, traces a career that began in the heyday of vaudeville and ended in TV, which I didn't know. That was quite a revelation for me, but it is much more than that. It's a a life through which all of American modernity seemed to express itself and express itself uniquely. Uh, We'll be joined by Dame Dana Stevens, (laughs) already too big for her britches. And then an equally remarkable story unfolding almost exactly parallel to Keaton's of a distinctly modern style of acting, one that emphasizes discipline as opposed to outer gesture and authentic depth of feeling on command will be joined by, I'm trying so hard to see what I wrote, 
F-T-E-A-F, FOP to end all FOPs. <laughs> Isaac Butler, of course, he the author of The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. Isaac, you remain perfectly sized for your own britches. Thank you. I just want to say that I'm impressed. I think this is the first time you've gotten all the subtitles correct, correct. for both books and just like nailed the uh, whole thing. No, so. wait, correction. You didn't get the subtitle correct. For <laughs> <laughs> all right. If for a, a, fuck off. B, can we get to the end of my introduction before we start ripping on me? Oh, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay. Thank you. And uh, finally, uh, you may have noticed these are two quite complimentary books about the 20th century to the point that each is kind of an uncannily perfect counterpart to the other. So in our sort of loosey-goosey formatted third segment, I think we're going to have something more like a free-for-all. And all three of us will discuss the two books. Joining me today is, uh, we'll start with Isaac, Isaac Butler. <laughs> uh, you've been over-introduced at this point. Yeah, exactly, so, exactly. Uh, and of course, Dana Stevens, who in addition to writing this book, is the um, film critic for Slate. Of course, he wrote another book with a slightly different subtitle. What was that subtitle? <laughs> a lot of work to write too with such similar subtitles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very Borgesian. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't blame you because I actually always grew up the subtitle myself. I didn't choose the subtitle. I think it's too long between us. I wanted a shorter subtitle. But the subtitle that I wanted is within the subtitle that exists, which would have been Buster Keaton and the invention of the 20th century. The idea being that Invention has two meanings there, that the camera is the invention of the 20th century and, you know, that the 20th century is being invented by Keaton. Um, the dawn of cinema got put in there, and to me it sounds a little bit like the Kubrick, you know, 2001, right. the dawn of time, and we go back to the monkey days. Buster Keaton's um, killing another clown with a, with a <laughs> thigh bone or something. <laughs> But, you know, I think long subtitles, especially for big nonfiction books, tend to sell them better because people sure. get a little broader idea of what's in the book. Oh, please, Dana, they're SEO friendly. Come on. <laughs> uh, the dawn of the 21st century has happened, so uh, join us. Okay. Um, Dana, let me begin by saying, first of all, uh, I loved the book, of course. It was a delight to live with it for a while, read it, and be kind of in your company, you know, during a time of pandemic um, in a way that we couldn't be. Otherwise, uh, you made a very, very strong choice, which was to not write a traditional biography uh, in any sense of the word. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even necessarily call it a critical biography. I, it's, it doesn't have a familiar mode to it, which is its great strength. Um, it's got both a tremendous arc, right? It tells a very large story about the 20th century. Uh, it also finds great beauty in the little details. Um, and uh, among the things I love about it most is the sheer variety of characters that get brought in along the way. You've got, just to name my, my, my favorites off the top of my head, Fatty Arbuckle, Irving Thalberg, James Agee gets a wonderful, people forget that he wrote this, he was the ma most masterful film, second most masterful film critic who ever lived. Um, <laughs> uh, and then Mabel Normand, right? An extraordinary story of the exact moment that women no longer will be you know, behind the camera in anything like the same numbers uh, as men. Uh, a, a distinct possibility through her career, the early part of her career. Um, but anyway, I, I, let's start out with just a, a very large question. I mean, I associated you already with Keaton. I have this facile theory of dyads, right? That there are these talents that are so extraordinary and they have a dialectical opposite that only makes 
the more extraordinary. So Beethoven and Mozart or Lennon and McCartney extraordinary for being in the same rock band. And something about us is forced to choose in some sense between them. There's Keaton and Chaplin. And of course it's facile and not real in some sense. But talk a little bit about Keaton, your attraction to Keaton. You wanted to go through the arduous, lonely, often bitter labor of, of, of writing a book alone with Keaton for years. Why, why so? Uh, so this is about Keaton and Chaplin, you're asking, or about the no, 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 of sort the of Keaton. You're attra- I see you as the person who's dyadically attracted to Keaton and not Chaplin. But don't tell me I'm wrong. That's a <laughs> it's a stupid question, so ignore it. But no. just tell me about your depth of feeling. You knew that you could draw upon a depth of feeling about presumably about Keaton to sustain the long, lonely process of writing a book. Talk about what that connection to Keaton was for you. Okay, I can. And as for Keaton and Chaplin, I can just quickly say that there's a whole chapter late in the book about the two of them, and specifically about their work together on Limelight in 1952, the one time that they ever worked together on screen. Uh, So that's not so much, uh, you know, comparison of them and their careers, but it is a moment of looking at how they crisscrossed in that midlife period, mid-century period. Um, But that aside, uh, why Keaton, I guess, is kind of the question. I talk about this in the book's introduction a bit, which is that you could say that this book is 25 years in the making, although only the last five or so of those years involved writing it or even researching it. Um, the, the 20 years before that were really just a long period of having you know, an extreme passion and enthusiasm for Keaton and his films, but also for that whole period, for sort of the, the first quarter of the century, the 20th century, you might say, or the first you know, from sort of the 1890s through the 1930s, that kind of period when modernity is forming itself. There are just so many great artists that came out of that period. There's so much to talk about in terms of technological change and cultural change and, you know, relationships between the races and the genders that all shifted wildly during that time to such a degree that we think of our time as this time of, you know, disorienting change, but compared to those years... Things are relatively, you know, technology and our relationship to it is staying relatively the same now. Mm. Um, And so that, you know, the wrenching kind of nature of that world that he was born into fascinated me. And, you know, you can read a little bit more biographically about how I kind of fell in love with him at a, you know, film festival and started to follow him in my late 20s. Um, But I would say that the genesis of the book came essentially from my obsession with his lifespan. Like somehow the idea that he was born in 1895, which was also the year that my oldest grandparent was born, and that he died the same year I was born, 1966, and just thinking about that time, that that lifespan, and what it represented in the history of the country became this kind of framework that I would look at other things through. So then I would, you know, be whatever, watching a documentary about the McCarthy hearings or something and think, huh, how old was Keaton then? And where was he living? You know, and I'd try to kind of picture what his relationship to that might have been. And in fact, that comes up in the book because Charlie Chaplin was being pursued by HUAC and that indirectly affected making limelight with Keaton. Anyway, it just started to seem like this Zelig-like situation where everywhere I looked, there was some oblique relationship to someone who knew him or had worked with him or to him himself or to some, something that he, a, a topic that he treated in his movies or satirized. And he was just everywhere. So when the time came for me to feel like I'm a little burned out on weekly criticism and I'd like to stretch and write a book, um, that seemed like one of the more natural places to right. start doing it. Uh, it reaches out so beautifully to all of these ancillary figures and, and, and they get woven in quite art, artfully to a single um, you know, pretty extraordinary story. To give people some flavor of the book who might not have picked it up yet, would you read from it? Uh, yeah, I'm willing to read if you all want to read it. Do people dread the idea of a reading? <laughs> Be honest. <laughs> I, we will. We have planned this. All right. The people cry out. 
I know. for a reading. I want to meet the guy who raises his hand and says, Excuse me. I dread the idea of a, a reading. Could we skip to the... It's the Boo Earns yeah, guy. Exactly. The yeah, exactly. Yeah, the Boo Earns um, guy. <laughs> All right, well, we, Isaac and I tried to plan these both so that they speak to each other a little bit, our two readings, and also so that they're relatively short, but also long enough that we can tell a real story, right? I mean, we tried to keep it to three minutes, which I think would be really jazzy and, like, you know, attention-grabbing. be like but, two paragraphs. But it wouldn't complete an idea. Yeah, so this is somewhere between five and six minutes. There may be a couple moments where I skip over a sentence or two just to, because I, I, it depends on something that's come before in the book. And the only setup you really need for this, um, this story, is that it takes place in 1917, and uh, it's the beginning of the middle section of the book about Keaton as a filmmaker, as opposed to his childhood as a vaudeville star on the stage, and talks about the moment right after he's broken up the family vaudeville act because of his father's drinking. That's pretty much all you need to know. His father's name is Joe Keaton. His mother's name is Myra Keaton. That might come up in the story. Okay. Chapter 9, Pancakes at Child's. The way the story is usually told, and in Keaton lore, this story, in whatever variant, is always told, Buster and Roscoe began making movies together the day they met. Over the course of that same day, if you believe the tale in its most condensed version, Keaton would also be introduced to his first wife, decide to leave the stage behind for motion pictures, and learn to take apart and reassemble a movie camera. It was in New York in late March 1917, a few months after Buster and Myra had abandoned Joe in California while he was on a bender, breaking up the Three Keatons act for good. Joe had taken a few weeks to sober up and trail his wife and son by train to Jingle's Jungle, the family's nickname for their Michigan summer cottage. In this flimsy structure, without heat or indoor plumbing, Joe would spend the remainder of the winter alone and shivering, at least according to Buster's account. There was enough money in the bank account, Buster recalled in his autobiography, in a tone at once solicitous of his father's well-being and dryly dismissive of his material privations. Pop wasn't going to die in Muskegon of either hunger or loneliness. Knowing him, I was sure he wouldn't die of remorse either. Myra was staying with relations in Detroit, while Harry and Louise, those are his little sister and brother, stayed on in boarding school in Michigan. And for the first time since Myra Cutler had run off to elope with Joe Keaton in 1893, no one in the household was bringing in a cent. The whole rickety contraption that was the Keaton family, an alcoholic father, an abused mother, too expensive to educate siblings, and no fit abode for any of them to live, now rested on Buster's back. It was up to him to reinvent his career in a way that could support his family, use his unique comic and acrobatic talents, and, if he was lucky, move beyond the constraints of the father and son roughhouse act he and Joe had been riffing on for the past 17 years. Not that finding work was a problem once Buster's train pulled into New York. The day he arrived, he signed a contract with the powerful theatrical agent Max Hart to appear as a solo act in The Passing Show of 1917, a yearly Broadway musical review at the Schubert's Winter Garden. Joining that show would have been a logical career move for Buster, a better paid step up from his long-held spot as vaudeville's peripatetic boy wonder. The passing show often acted as a showcase for rising talent. The following year, it would feature a brother and sister dance act from vaudeville, Fred and Adele Astaire, of whom Adele was considered the superior dancer and bigger stage personality, though it was her perfectionist younger brother who took charge of the choreography. A slightly more risque competitor to the Ziegfeld Follies, the passing show was known for its send-ups of the previous season's popular entertainments, 
a form perfectly suited to Buster's gift for mimicry. Still, Buster awoke that March morning feeling uneasy. For one thing, the papers were full of news about America's inevitable entry into the war in Europe, a momentous possibility that impinged on the consciousness of the serenely apolitical Buster, mainly as the awareness he might soon be called up to serve, as indeed happened in 1919. More pressing at the moment was the matter that, with rehearsals for the passing show set to begin in just days, he had no idea how to structure a 15-minute-long solo turn without his father to torment and be tormented by. How would he create conflict or a beginning, middle, and end without an onstage adversary? With no one there to throw him, how would he fall? With these questions weighing on his mind, Buster went into a child's restaurant and ordered a stack of pancakes. This detail appears only in the account of the day he gave to his first biographer, Rudy Blesch. But amid the conflicting versions of this much-mythologized story, its specificity and randomness have the ring of truth. At key turning points in our lives, it's not unusual to recall the last meal we ate before everything changed. And anyway, it's hard to see what rhetorical advantage would be gained from falsely claiming you did something so ordinary as have breakfast at Child's. Child's was one of America's, and therefore the world's, first restaurant chains. It lasted from 1889, when the first location was founded in Lower Manhattan by the brothers Samuel and William Childs, until the early 1960s, when the last straggling outposts were absorbed by a fast food franchising giant that still operates Wendy's, Taco Bell's, and other chains across swaths of Manhattan. Like Keaton, the Child's chain would enjoy its biggest boom years in the 1920s, when the country, flush with cash and in constant motion, wanted everything on the double. At its height, the franchise extended to more than 125 branches in the United States and Canada. Skipping a bit. Back in the 1910s, the chain's distinctive look connoted modernity, cleanliness, and efficiency. The childs of that era was known for its simple white-tiled lunchrooms staffed with white-clad waitresses, a modern touch in an era when male waiters were still the norm. Griddle cakes of several kinds, rye, cornmeal, buckwheat, were a child's specialty, often cooked on a griddle in a window facing the street to attract customers. The draw was not only the smell of sizzling flapjacks, but the pristine yet discreetly erotic appeal of the young women turning them, as this description from Time magazine makes clear. In the windows, immaculate young ladies flip purest batter cakes to the attraction, the invitation, of passers-by. <laughs> In the 1936 short Grand Slam Opera, the best of the low-budget cheater films Keaton made with the Poverty Row studio Columbia in his down-and-out years, he would stage a scene around a pretty girl flipping pancakes in the window of an unnamed restaurant. Annoyed with his moony ogling, she flips a cake directly onto the plate glass window between them, obscuring his face. Being a waitress at Child's required extensive training. Demure behavior was expected and no diner slang allowed. The job paid better than most service jobs for women at the time, though the girls were required to purchase and launder their own starched white shirtwaists and were charged in full for any crockery they broke or bills their customers skipped out on. These women, most of them young and foreign-born, served cheap, wholesome meals to a working and middle-class clientele. The rise of the child's chain at the turn of the century was part of that era's broader quest for reinvention, anonymity, mobility, and novelty. The location's familiar white-tiled neutrality was like a blank slate or a movie screen, a backdrop against which all sorts of urban encounters might happen. 
And in the popular culture of the 20th century, Childs frequently served as an actual backdrop. In 1935, E.B. White wrote a poem in The New Yorker about witnessing a subtle flirtation between a child's customer and a waitress. After demurely observing the proper service protocol, the white-clad server glances back with a modest smile, quick as the passing of summer rain. Richard Rogers and Lawrence Hart included a lyric about the chain in their popular 1925 song, Manhattan, characterizing it as a place to be stylishly, even romantically broke. We'll go to Yonkers where true love conquers in the wilds and starve together, dear, in childs. <laughs> Almost a quarter century later, Betty Comden and Adolph Green name-checked the franchise in a song for the 1953 musical, Wonderful Town. The song's heroine, an aspiring actress from Alabama, arrives in New York with repertoire ready, Chekhov's and Shakespeare's and Wilde's. Now they watch her flipping flapjacks at Child's. <laughs> as late as 1968, in the opening shots of the movie The Odd Couple, a neon-lit Child's can be clearly seen on one corner as a distraught Jack Lemmon makes his way through the streets of Manhattan at night. What variety of flapjack Buster chose that day in 1917 has been lost to history. <laughs> But at any rate, as he recalled to Blesh, he was too preoccupied to eat. He paid his 10-cent bill, 15 if he also ordered a cup of coffee, and made his way back into the street, where he ran almost immediately into Lou Anger, a former vaudeville comic by then working as a studio manager for Roscoe Arbuckle. Had Buster ever seen a movie being made, Lou asked? He had not. Well then, why didn't he come along and visit the set of Arbuckle's first independently produced film, The Butcher Boy? then in preparation for its first day of shooting. The notoriously unloquacious Buster had only about three or four standard anecdotes he told over and over in interviews, and the encounter that would follow was one of them. If you believe the most condensed version of the story, the day to come, he was about to be introduced to his best friend, his wife-to-be, and the art form that would change his life, and whose history he would help to shape. But when I think of that late March morning, Suspended between two eras in Buster's history and the country's, it's the visit to Childs, I imagine. The uneaten pancakes, the newspapers with war in the headlines, the floating shapes of the waitresses in their starched white dresses. I wonder if one of them noticed the handsome young man with the worried face as she cleared away his untouched plate and broke protocol by smiling. Okay, I think it's uh, time for a quick break, but we'll be right back with more of the live event uh, after a word from our sponsor. Back in the 90s, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were in a heated race to try and win loyal customers by any means necessary. But when Pepsi launched an ambitious promotion that encouraged people to buy Pepsi and redeem points for prizes, they overlooked their own fine print in a major way. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Like, who at Pepsi thought it would be a good idea to advertise that people could earn enough points to redeem a military jet as a prize? When they launched their Pepsi point system, they never imagined somebody might try to actually snag it, but a 23-year-old did, and suddenly, Pepsi owed him a jet. 
Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Okay, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk business. Dana, what do we have? Steve, our business ties in nicely to our show this week, which is, of course, a book launch, joint book launch for me and Isaac, because our first item of business is just to tell listeners about a special deal for the audiobook edition of my book, Cameraman. If you go to slate.com slash Dana, this absolutely cracks me up that I have my own dedicated URL. You can get Cameraman on audio read by me for just $13.99, which is $10 off the list price. Also, once you purchase the audiobook, you'll be able to listen to it in your preferred podcast app. There's no standalone app you need to download and no subscription fees. Please note that this audiobook sale is brought to you by Slate, which means that your purchase not only supports me and the book I've been working on for so many years of my life, it also helps to support the important and distinctive Slate journalism you depend on. This is a limited time sale, so don't just sit there. Go to slate.com slash Dana. Again, that's slate.com slash D-A-N-A. Steve, our second item of business is just to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. It'll just be the Q&A from our live show, which is often what we do when we have a live show. There's some overflow. People get up and ask questions about our books, about our show. And there were some really good ones at the Strand event, I thought. So if you're a Slate Plus member, stay tuned at the end for that segment at the end of this show. And of course, if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can always become one at slate.com slash culture plus. When you're a Slate Plus member, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus content like the Q&A segment I just described, you'll hear that kind of programming on other shows as well, and of course, you get unlimited access to all the writing on Slate.com, so you'll never hit a paywall if you belong to Slate Plus. Also, of course, you will be supporting our work and the work of our many brilliant colleagues. These memberships really matter to Slate, so please, if you can, sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Once again, that's Slate.com slash Culture Plus. All right, Steve, back to the show. That was marvelous, Dana. Thank you. And I, I just love the way it exhibits that. That was a beautifully chosen passage. Like the pa- book's powers of condensation and expansion simultaneously are what's so remarkable about it. I'm now going to impose a slightly more traditional biographical question on, on your non-biographical sensibility just for a second because we're pressed for time. Um, I was almost most surprised by the fact that you, to pick a phrase out of what you just read, his down and out years were actually not so down and or so out. I imagined there was gonna be this long, depleted, sad clown, alcoholic phase that stretched for decades and longevity turned out to be a curse and poor Buster Keaton, this relic from the silent era, on and on and on, not at all. In fact, he remained this remarkably adaptable uh, creature um, all the way pretty much until nearly the end of his life. And, and it was able to earn quite a remarkable career even well beyond any of the um, heyday films. Or, um, But there was one moment, and I wonder if you agree with me, that it tells us a lot in a negative way about the essence of Keaton, of non-adaptation, which was the advent of the studio system. I mean, here's a person who went from vaudeville to silent film to talkies. I didn't even realize he really was okay in talking pictures, made money in them. But once he was a part of an independent production ethos, gave him enormous amount of creative and financial freedom, and MGM sort of sucked him up for a variety of business reasons. Uh, And he became part of Irving Thalberg's studio. And we know in one context to reveal Thalberg, I think quite rightly, as the creator of of the studio as we know it. But in this context, as much as he loved Keith, there was no evidence that the two men had antipathy for one another. 
Keaton couldn't adapt to the machinery of MGM, and, and even a man so supple and brilliant as Thalberg couldn't find a way to get Keaton to fit within it. Am I right to think that that's an interesting moment where the gears unusually stall for him? I mean, in any biography you, you read of Keaton, or even just you know the most basic Wikipedia version of his life, there's this this awful moment, right, where he where the silent era ends, the sound era begins, and he makes what he calls in his autobiography the worst mistake of my life of signing with MGM. In a way, if you look at as the book tries to do at the economic forces on the industry at that moment, he didn't have that much of a choice. He maybe he could have signed with a different company and he, you know, again would have lost his freedom and been a contract player for some big studio. But really what was happening at that moment is just that the studio system was congealing into place. And that Wild West world of early silent film that he had come up come up in, you know, where you had your own dedicated crew and your own little studio and it was a kind of mom and pop operation you know, that was that was just disappearing everywhere. So yeah, that's a really, really tragic moment in his biography, not least because, as you say, the films that he made at MGM were successes. They were big financial successes, yeah. in part because MGM was just a huge, powerful studio with a powerful marketing arm, and Buster Keaton's name on a marquee got people into the theater. And early sound, there's this brief period in early sound where just quality didn't really matter. <laughs> it was only a couple years, but you know, if a movie had sound, mm. people would come to see it. And if it was a comedy with sound, people would laugh at it. And Harold Lloyd has some famous line about you know being offended that people were laughing at ice cubes clinking in a glass, you know, because it was a sound. And uh, <laughs> And so, yeah, there was Keaton in that completely radically new world where tastes are changing and the economy of film is changing and the way movies are made is drastically changing. They're suddenly yeah. inside big, brightly lit sound stages and you can't move around and, you know, create crazy sets on the fly and climb up telephone poles and do all the things that the Buster Keaton studio is used to doing. And it's just really sad to track those years of his life. Numerically, they were relatively few, but they were dark. Mm -hmm. You know, he definitely had a dark time there at yeah. MGM where he really, when you sort of read the stories about that time, is like an animal in a cage. You know, he's just a person who his whole life had, had been free, you know, had never gone to school a single day in his life, had been peripatetic throughout his whole childhood, had had so much creative freedom to yes. make exactly the bizarre visions that he wanted to realize for all those years, and to find himself kind of slapped into a dressing room bungalow and become a contract player, he was just, he, he was just viscerally miserable and acted out in all kinds of ways. Can, can you share a couple of those ways he acted out with the audience? Because they, they are some of the moments in the book that I find kind of delightful. His like punk spirit, oh you God. know, of, of right. some of the antics he would pull in the parking lot of the right. of the studio and stuff like that. Yeah, even though his whole life he had been a pretty, you know, he in, in many ways was a very passive kind of figure. There were many, many moments in his life where he could have, you know, by making more of a fuss, for example, by going to MGM, he might have advanced his career. Um, but yeah, it was rare for him to act out in anger. But then when he started to, in those years when he was drinking, too much, his marriage was falling apart, he was miserable in his job at MGM. There were some real biopic-ready moments, like some walk-hard kind of situations that he got into. <laughs> and I think the one, I mean, this one is really biopic-ready, if anybody is out there drafting their, their Keaton biopic, is this famous story Louise Brooks, the silent film actress, told about him. She was not a close friend, but she went out with a close friend of his, also named Buster, Buster Collier. And, uh, and so they hung in the same social circles in this period, when he was really, you know, roaring 20s, kind of at the top of his game, but starting to be miserable because he had signed with MGM, but still, you know, living in a giant Hollywood mansion, all of that. And, uh, and there was a moment after a dinner party at his house where Louise Brooks and her boyfriend, Buster Collier, were present, where he asked to be driven to his studio bungalow, which he called Keaton's Kennel, right, in a kind of like ironic, uh, he had a little sign that said that in a kind of ironic protest of him being this mascot kept in a cage. And 
He says, let's drive to the kennel. And so they drove him to the kennel, and as she describes it, they got out, uh, he walked in, he, he fixed them each a drink, and then he proceeded to go into another room, come back, come back with a baseball bat, and break all of the glass in. I mean, if you imagine this whole room had sort of leaded glass, you know, it was a fancy bungalow with, um, with enclosed glass bookshelves lining the entire place. And he methodically, you know, and it probably took hundreds of different baseball swings, broke every single pane and every single window without saying a word. He then put the baseball bat down and proceeded to have a drink with them as if nothing had happened. You know? So, so yeah, he was a guy who had a lot of anger, but who repressed it very effectively. And when it came out, it came out in a big way. All right, time for another break to hear from our sponsor, Via Dana. But uh, we'll return very quickly to our wonderful live event at The Strand right after this. This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Most of you listening to this show right now are probably multitasking in some way or another. You might be driving, cleaning, exercising, maybe grocery shopping. But as long as you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing right now, and that's getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy, and you can save money by doing it right now from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner, and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Isaac, why don't we turn to you now? Would you pick a passage? We'll start with a passage uh, from your book. Yeah, totally. Um, Interestingly, this is a passage about the studio system in many ways that ate Buster Keaton alive. Um, I wanted to talk a little... One thing that unites Dana and my, my books is that they're about sort of theatrical revolution and genius that then comes to film and reinvents film in in many ways. Um, So I'm going to read a passage about the first method movie star who is not Marlon Brando, but in fact, a different person who comes way before Marlon Brando in 1938. And he comes out of the group theater, which if you don't know what the group theater was, it was a collective, it was a theater collective, supposedly, that uh, produced on on Broadway. Uh, and it's really where the method is born. The, the group theater was founded by Lee Strasberg, the inventor of the method, Harold Clerman and Cheryl Crawford. Uh, its members included uh, Robert Lewis, Samford Meisner, uh, Stella Adler, Clifford Odets, Aaliyah Kazan, all these incredibly significant figures for the rest of the century. And it also included the person that I'm about to read to you about. 
uh, who quit the group because he was promised a role and then didn't get it, and then was like, uh, I should just make money. I'm going to go out to Hollywood. All right, so by going to Hollywood in the 1930s, John Garfield entered a system of vast interlocking factories. Warner Brothers, Garfield's home for the next eight years, was so massive it had its own ranch for filming westerns. The studios owned a significant share of the movie theaters in which their product was shown, giving them tremendous power over the work they created, the way in which it was made, and how it was distributed. Actors belonged to specific studios, locked into contracts so lopsided in their terms that over the years they would often be compared to indentured servitude or even slavery. Just as the factories created movies, they created the stars that appeared in them. At the height of the studio system, Hollywood scouted potential stars everywhere from podunk beauty contests to Broadway. Once discovered, you would go through a probationary period that resulted in a six-month contract, after which the studio could extend its option on you, owning you and your work for six months longer. If you hit it big, they'd offer you a seven-year contract, which carried you to the upper echelons of the business, but also meant that you were tied to the studio in significant ways. In return for being paid for 40 weeks of work a year, you had to agree to fully participate in and cooperate with the studio's public relations machine. You would have little say in what projects you were assigned to, and you could be rented out to other studios without consultation, a practice that allowed studios to punish rebellious stars by intentionally lending them out to appear in second-rate movies to hurt their image with the public. You could be dropped from the contract at any time, and your pay could be lowered if you fell in popularity. In order for the Star Factory to function, it had to figure out a type for each actor and then put them in movie after movie that used or existed in relationship to that type. The type was sold to audiences as an extension of the actor's actual personality, often via the publishing of usually invented biographies in the press. Good acting in the 1930s entailed believably applying your type to your films, whether it was the dashing devil-may-care romance of Errol Flynn or the hard-boiled cynicism of Humphrey Bogart. The studios also had acting schools and contracts with local theaters to train their stars. Alongside this professional training was an informal system of education in the practical realities of filmmaking. To act on camera, you had to know how to hit your mark, remember your lines, perform scenes out of order, and most important, make the camera, and thus the viewer, love you. You also had to be ready to act on command. A busy set on a tight deadline has no time for getting into character or finding the right memory to trigger the right emotion. You picked up how to do all of this by working constantly. John Garfield made 11 movies in the first three years of his career. Clark Gable made 17. More established actors took newcomers under their wing. On the set of 1940's City for Conquest, Leah Kazan got an education in acting from George Raft and James Cagney. Raft taught him that acting for the stage and for the camera were different animals entirely. On the stage, you act for the crowd, all the way to the rafters. On the screen, your performance is directed solely at the camera, which can see you think. So here's what you do. Get rid of as many lines as you can. Give them to the other guy. Let him tell the story, and so on. While this is going on, you think, or at least you look like you're thinking. <laughs> the first time I was in a picture, I was very frightened, John Garfield said of the experience. It's a mechanical thing. They never rehearse, and it looks as if the least important things, the lights and so on, come first. That was quite a blow. He was particularly surprised to learn that you almost never directly talk to your scene partner. Eventually, he realized that in the theater you act and in the movies you react. I am ashamed of my emotions in the movies. That monster, the camera comes up and you can't really say because immediately you are acting. So it's always safer in movies to underplay. 
This may all be false modesty, as Garfield's actual performance in his debut film, Four Daughters, appears to be the work of a consummate artist. Garfield is often remembered as the actor who paved the way for Montgomery Clift, Marlon Brando, and the Method Revolution. And while this is somewhat true, it does not do his body of work justice. In Four Daughters, John Garfield's performance is not a herald of changes to come, it is the change itself. Unfortunately for Garfield's legacy, he often appeared in films whose material could not match his gifts, and Four Daughters is no exception. Here is the story of Four Daughters. Claude Rains plays a guy named Adam Lemp, who has four daughters. They reside in a perfect house and live a life devoid of meaningful conflict. Eventually, each of the daughters finds a suitable match, but one of the daughters, played by Priscilla Lane, leaves her suitable match for his best friend before eventually finding her way back to him. That suitable match is Felix Dietz, a good-looking, good-natured composer played by Jeffrey Lim. The best friend is Mickey Borden, a down-on-his-luck pianist and composer whom Felix has hired to help him out with some arrangements. Played by John Garfield. Borden disrupts the Lemp household just as Garfield disrupts the film. This disruption plays out in the plot. Mickey runs away with Anne, takes her to New York, and eventually dies in a car crash, allowing her to return to Felix. But more important, it plays out in acting style. Four Daughters is a film that could not exist without typecasting. Not only is each daughter and each beau a type, they all know they are types. Lola Lane introduces her character by saying, I'm Thea, the clever sister. <laughs> When Mary Robeson's Aunt Etta tries to get tough in one scene, a character responds, don't try to be so hard-boiled, Aunt Etta, you can't pull it off. <laughs> the characters greet Borden as this strange exception. What is he? He doesn't seem to have a type, or perhaps he's a new one. Urban, witty, neurotic, disheveled, charming, and doomed. Typecasting allowed for the creation of an ironic distance between actor and character. In that little gap dwelled a link between audience and star, allowing them to navigate the film together. Garfield's performance in Four Daughters, more present and more alive than that of anyone else on camera, collapses that distance. Even today, his character feels shockingly new. When he says, nothing I would do would surprise me, you believe him. He steals Anne away not only because Borden is a more authentic and honest man than Felix, but because Garfield's acting style is more authentic and honest as well. That authenticity, that willingness to embrace the unkempt and uncomfortable sides of the character, to open oneself up to the camera and its judgment, has an undeniable charismatic pull. Garfield's performance was so electric that it helped power four daughters into box office success and several Oscar nominations. The film spawned two sequels, Four Wives and Four Mothers. <laughs> you can guess the premise of each. But since Garfield's character was dead, the sequels lacked his magic. Warner Brothers threw the Four Daughters cast and director together again for a nearly identical but much better film called Daughters Courageous. By then, it was clear that Garfield had failed at failing in Hollywood. Three years later, when the group theater collapsed for good, many of its members would find their way to the Dream Factory. This time, they would find greater success, and their ideas about acting would slowly spread through the city like a drop of ink in a glass of water. Thank you. Uh, that was also marvelous. Thank you, Isaac. Um, I, you know, you were saying back in the green room something that I had only dimly thought of, and you put it beautifully, which is that Dana was took a 
the raw material of a biography and wrote something else in a way, I mean, not an anti-biography, but something larger than or emerging from a simple biography. You sort of had the opposite issue, yeah. which is something no two people can agree on. Like Stella Adler and Lee Strasberg would go to their grave wanting to claw one another's eyes out because yeah. they disagreed on what the method was. Uh, Stanislavski seemed to have changed his mind over the course of his life and career as to exactly what he was trying to say and, and carry across. You had to take this contentious, nebulous thing, pretend for the bulk of your book that it's coherent enough to have written a single history of, as if it deserves a biography, and then at the end you say, does it even really exist? Yep. Meh, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a weird thing where, you know, the, the method and the thing called the system before that, which was what Stanislavski called his, his series of techniques and ideas, it rests on this core idea, uh, and what the different people who went to war for the rest of their lives over Stanislavski's ideas, they all do share this thing, which is this idea that Stanislavski called, I just learned how to pronounce this recently, despite writing this book, is uh, perizhevania. And it's a Russian word that loosely translates to experiencing or re-experiencing. And, and you probably have, think you've seen this in some level. It's the moment where it really just doesn't seem like the actor is acting anymore. It seems like they really are the character. They're really feeling what the character feels. They've entered that imaginative reality. And hilariously, there's a study that came out like five years ago in the Netherlands. It's like, that's not a real thing. Actors don't, if you ask actors, if you give them like surveys that they don't have to sign their name to, they'll, they'll confess that's not a real thing. That doesn't happen. And so I was really fascinated by that, especially because a hundred years before in England is an almost identical study in the 19th century that comes to the complete opposite conclusion, which is like, well, actually, if you ask actors and don't make them sign their names, they will admit they really feel this thing, even though we find that scandalous, you know? And so I just thought that was really interesting that there's so little consensus over this thing, and yet it totally changed all of our tastes and our belief of right. what Right, well, let's, let's just, sorry, Dana, just one sec, but let's sort of work that, that conflict in a way, because on the one hand, something real is happening, right? right? That the, that people didn't ascribe to this cult like, you know, uh, highly theoretical, also like heavily experiential and technique-based uh, thing chimerically, right? Or like it wasn't a total, you know, yeah. fantasy that they were becoming something that they hadn't been before they, the, the method. On the other hand, you'd have to be an absolute psycho, right? On performance number 280 of a Broadway play to really have become Lear again that night in any real way compared to opening night or God knows ever. And similarly, you shoot movies out of sequence, I right? I mean, the, the person you're playing, I mean, it's like, you know, on, you know, suddenly the setup is totally different and you're at a different arc in the story. There's no emotional thrust to it. And on command, you have to be this. So it's somewhere in between the two, right? Well, it's, in, it's interesting because, you know, Stanislavski, who is a, a real perfectionist, I mean, the ideal he ha had is that you should never have a cold performance. You should never have yeah. a performance where you're not really experiencing the character. And when the Ever he had those performances, it, it caused a profound crisis for him. And so one of the values that gets enshrined in both the system and the method is that kind of um, perfectionism. And in fact, there's a, a, a truly great, probably the, the greatest stage actress of the mid 20th century in the United States is this woman, Kim Stanley, who was a, a devotee of the method and a, a big mover and shaker at the actor studio and all, all sorts of stuff. And um, 
she just really drove herself, uh, I think you, you could even say to madness in pursuit of that goal. She was in a play with uh, Helen Hayes uh, and they did not get along. And in an interview later, Helen Hayes said, uh, oh, well, you know, um, Kim's a brilliant actor, but the problem is, is that she wants to give a performance as good as opening night on a rainy Wednesday matinee. And Kim was told this and she said in response, well, I would never want it to be the same as opening night uh, on that rainy Wednesday matinee. It should be better. And so, you know, that's, that's an ideal you can't reach. Yeah. And so that, that is one of the complications for sure. Okay, one more short break, and then we'll be back with the final segment of our event at The Strand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, I need to pause the proceedings for one second. I've been given a five-minute cue. Is that until we begin question and answer, or does it include question and answer? Brilliant. Okay, so we have five to go. Great. And this dream of a third segment where you interact with one another has been dashed. <laughs> no, I refused. My, Ashley and I have to be able to talk to each yeah, other yeah, yeah, about yeah. our book. Talk Come to one another yeah, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll do it quickly in five minutes. Dana, your book is amazing. I love it. Uh, no, I, I, I do want to know, though, actually following up on the sort of my thing being a biography of not a person and your thing being a, not a biography of a person, is what led you to that approach with, with Keaton? Is it just because the sort of stations of the cross of his life are so well known? Or, or, you know, what was it that made you kind of abandon biography and reach to a different form and a right. different way of approaching it? I mean, I think like a lot of things that happen in writing, it's more... Uh, because you can't do anything else mm -hmm. that something happens than because you set out to craft some great plan. You know, honestly, I'm just not a biographer. I just don't write in that way. You know, right. like, God bless biographers. Without them, I could never have written this. But that person who is going to go to archives and dig up new material and find every new five-minute, you know, interval of things that happened in Buster Keaton's life or anyone's life, that is just not me. Uh, I'm a critic, and I write as a critic, and ultimately I was trying to write an interpretive work. So... So that just sort of happened by default. But I guess if I were to put an abstract value on it, I would say that what I was interested in trying to do, and I've read other books that do this and admired them a lot, is not to tell a life story, but to look at history as it moves through someone's life. Mm -hmm. you know? And that seems like very analogous to something that you're doing, even though there's a large group of people and movements whose life you're watching history move through. right? I mean, both of us yeah, seem totally. like we're sort of tracing a set of ideas and themes that that are very, I mean, in some ways that interweave a lot. Charles Pancake House even comes up in your book, Ch which yeah. is part of why I chose that. Uh, and Robert Sherwood, who you wrote a whole, you write very beautifully about in your right. book, was a playwright for the group theater. I mean, he wrote plays at the group theater. Right, did, Robert so. Sherwood comes up in yours, Ilya Kazan comes up in mine, yeah. because it's, you know, it's the entertainment business of the 20th century, totally. so naturally they're going to overlap. The thing I wanted to ask you, and I have a couple quotes about it, but I won't have time to find them now, but... It has to do with this question you were talking about, about the undefinability of what mm -hmm. the method is. And what really struck me reading your book is how far back that goes. Like you go back to Stanislavski, right? The creator, the kind of grandfather of the method. 
and you say he's a terrible writer. His writer writing is completely incomprehensible, and nobody can tell what he's getting at when he yeah. writes about what the system, as he calls it, is. And then when it moves into the into the American context, it's sort of the same thing. You talk about how uh, Lee Strasberg, you know, the kind of greatest of method teachers, was really verbose and hard to follow, and his students disagreed on what he was saying, and many of them walked out, you know, having no idea what had just been said. And there's yeah. some kind of conference that you talk about, I think it was in 1964, where the Moscovites yeah. theater people come to the U.S. and try to spread the knowledge of their great system, and everybody comes out of it saying, I have no idea what just happened. I know. You know, when I, when I found that moment, I was like, oh, this is good. I mean, part of the story of the book is the evolution of people's understanding of the idea, because I think that, like, the idea evolves, but also so people's understanding of it changes, and I thought that was really wild. So one of the things that happens over the course of the group theater is that Stella Adler and Lee Strasberg have this schism that lasts the rest of their lives. When, Lee's, when Lee Strasberg died, the first things Stella Adler said when she put down the phone after hearing he had died is she turned to uh, Moni Yakim, who's a movement teacher at Juilliard. She turned to him and she said, good riddance, that man will finally stop ruining actors. So, like, that's, you know, and that was, uh, yeah, anyway, so um, they had this lifelong schism about, you know, um, is it transubstantiation or is it a metaphor? You know, but in their case, it was, uh, is emotion and the self the, the key to acting or is imagination and behavior the key to acting? And finally, Stella Adler's like, these actors from the Moscow Theater are coming to America. This is in the 60s. We're going to have a conference, and I'm just going to ask them it directly. And the conference goes awry seconds in. You know, the first thing that actually happens, if I remember correctly, is Shelley Winters gets up, and she has some long autobiographical question, and Stella's like, shut up, Shelley. No one cares about your life. And then, and then, you know, they're speaking through translators. They don't even understand the question about emotion they're being asked. The actors give this contradictory thing, and then at the end of it, Stella Adler literally is like, well, if you were confused going into this, you're going to be no better off now. And it's like, this is great. I mean, it's, it's just wonderful, you know, that, that they can never solve this problem. Well, to that point, it just seems like, I mean, this recent, I've seen a lot of it online around your book and around the Jeremy Strong profile, yeah. right, about succession. I owe Michael I, Shulman like a gift basket Absolutely. It's just, it's just like, really, the, the runway he prepared for my book. It's amazing. true. It's like there was behind-the-scene collusion between yeah, your exactly. publicists or something. But... But the fact that that was in the air recently made me think about, you know, this this undefinableness that you write about it yeah. as far as what the method is, right? Where it's so easy to sort of say like, oh, for God's sake, you know, gaining weight does not equal method or, right. you know, <laughs> going crazy for a part and being self-destructive does not equal method. But given that nobody has known all these last 100 years exactly what it does mean, it sort of seems like that's as good a guess as any. I think yeah. it, the key to it is is if you can get other people to believe that you understand the method... <laughs> And believe in it, right? Th then you're a fucking great actor. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, there are certain core things at it. I mean, although its definition keeps changing, so what are we even talking about? But if we're talking about for most, for the much of the second half of the 20th century, the method very specifically meant Lee Strasberg's adaptation right. of Stanislavski. Right. And so that, and it's not just Stanislavski, but that has some components that are fixed and teachable. There's exercises that you can go and you can learn. But then there's another component of it, which is just also Lee Strasberg is watching your scene work and he's giving you feedback and it's the wisdom that right. he imparts or fails to impart while doing that that's such an important part and so when he dies it's like well what what do you do and the answer is well you sort of publish edited collections of his lectures and you, you know you try to sort of figure out the other stuff but there are right. components of it that are fixed and then components of it that are very malleable okay we have to move on to the question yeah. now so let me first say what i love most about your book which is please do I, it, it seems to me the, the coherent thread through all of it is people teaching other people to take acting seriously as an art form yeah. and the book teaching us 
to take acting seriously as an Thank art you. form on, on par with fill in the blank, dance, theater, you know, on and on, uh, you know, play, playwriting, whatever. Um, and uh, mission accomplished. The other thing I loved about it also is that in a way it's the story of authenticity in a time when post-Warhol, post-modernists don't believe in authenticity and the connection of outer gesture to some meaningful inner core. Yeah. As a like the paradigm is dead in some sense, post-Warhol. And I like the idea that for acting to come to a self-understanding of itself as an art, that really only could be made obsolete very late in the game. I mean, mm -hmm. as you trace it and as I understand it, it's really the 1980s. Yeah. You begin to get a serious competitor to it. But what a golden age of performances it gave us. Um, and using an archaic, an unapologetically archaic language that comes from the Russians and from Chekhov about a depth of inner feeling, a soulfulness, and if you can find it inside of you, then you will bring it forth for others to experience and I don't know any other art form in which that's an acceptable way of thinking anymore I mean I, I that's an exaggeration but we've you know there's a sense in which we've sort of matured beyond it which I don't agree with so I was grateful to see someone honoring in a deep and serious way people with that kind of a commitment to suffering for your art form <laughs> creating something transcendent yeah. through an innerness yeah well i mean one of the things that that's the core of all these different versions of these ideas is that thing you're talking about and and those values of, of trying to be authentic and taking it seriously and trying to tell the truth in your art and the belief that there that you could find a truth that there is a truth that you could find and tell in your art um, I find that very moving. I think authenticity is constructed and all that other thing, but that doesn't make it not powerful or, or important. You know, it, that's the weird dialectic that we all live in, I think. It's like sort of everything's fake and everything's real at the same time. Yeah, where would humanity be if we didn't believe in things that were patently false, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like all of our evolution is pegged towards false belief. Listen, this is a show. We have to yeah. wrap it. I want to say, Isaac and Dana, thank you oh, very, much. So you're not going to tell me the thing you really loved about my book. I, I already... <laughs> I already told it to you at the end of your segment, the condensation and the expansion. Kidding, I can kidding, work up I can work wrap. up another bullshit line if you well, want. Can I can I say one thing about, about Dana's book is that I knew very little about Buster Keaton going in. I mean I knew the facts of his life, but you know, I, I just didn't know that much about him going in. And reading your book was both a process of getting to uh, love you as a writer more while falling in love with this important this figure who's so important to you and so important to the history of his art form. And um, one thing that came out of that, as you know, is I started watching the not racist but Buster Keaton shorts and other films, because some of them are super racist, but the not racist ones I started watching with with my seven-year-old and she loves them and to watch that she gets as much delight out of them as I do you know watching Buster Keaton in the electric house going up the you know oh, the escalator my daughter loved that uh, you know as a kid. yeah yeah totally or or everything about one week you know there's the part in one week where he's nailed the car to the house and then he starts the car and the car moves but he stays and so he's just floating attached to the house I mean we were dying laughing and it's been just like a great gift to get into Buster Keaton with uh -huh. you as the guide uh, through your book so I, I, oh, I really really you. appreciate Thanks it all right much. well Isaac Butler and Dana Stevens thank you so much Okay, well, that's it for our live event at The Strand. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. 
You'll find links to some of the things we talked about at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. The introductory music to our show is by Nicholas Bertel. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. For Dana Stevens and Isaac Butler, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. And for those of you who came to The Strand, an extra warm thank you. We will see you soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows granger has got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.